Oh, I am so glad to be in God's house with you this morning. Anybody glad that you came? Glad for God and His goodness. I just love, you know, I was thinking as, as uh, Ashley was talking about the prayer request and sort of invited whoever knows the family affected by the, the fire in the apartment. Hey, we want to help. That's the spirit of the church. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a, a pastor's kind of conference, a leadership conference here in Manhattan, uh, hosted by Exponential. And a guy came up to me and he's like, hey, I'm Freddie. I was like, have we met before? He said, no, 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 you don't know me, but I know you. I'm a pastor in Queens and you guys help me. I said, uh, refresh my memory. He said, a year ago, we just planted our church and no sooner had we planted it, like literally within a week or two, uh, my wife nearly died giving birth to our baby who almost nearly died as well, like crazy complications. She barely survived the birth. And he said, and our medical insurance wasn't covering anything. I was supposed to be at a pastor's lunch you were hosting at the office in Manhattan. And he said, and, and you found out why I couldn't make it. And you asked everybody, we never met before. That was going to be my first time at the gathering. And he said, you just passed the hat around. And literally between all the pastors, I don't remember how, it was like $10,000, $15,000. The churches got together and every medical bill was paid. And I just thought for me, I was like, you know, here's a guy we haven't met, but we're all on the same team. You know what I mean? I think the local church is truly the hope of the world when we are same team, lifting up one name for each other, stronger together, acting like family, not just at a local level, but together the body of Christ. All of our different parts. I love all the diversity and all of us different uh, kind of outworkings in the body of Christ, but we gotta be together in an amen. And so I think, I pray that's true of us locally. And I pray it's true of the church collectively as well. They better put a timer on the back or we'll still be here at 4 p.m. Ah, should I get into the message? What do you think? <laughs> you didn't know until I pointed that out, but that was, that was for my benefit. <laughs> I'm gonna pray. Father, what a joy to be in your house and what a joy to be with your people, the best people on earth. I love the people of God full, because we're full of your presence. That's the way it's supposed to be, not perfect. Not perfect, but on a journey. And that journey leads us more every day to your likeness. And you are perfect. You're good and you're gracious. You're kind and you're humble. You're loving and you're selfless. And we pray more of that in us every day. More of you, less of us. You must increase. We must decrease. Shine your light through us, God. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, my message this morning is simply called Forest City. For a city. If you know much about the story of our church, uh, and you know that later this month we'll be celebrating our eighth birthday, eight years on the last Sunday of this month since we started weekly services in this downtown Manhattan area, and then all the crazy, amazing, beautiful, good things God has done since that time. But you know, really, the, the moment when we answer that call. We'd felt the stirring of God for years about New York and it's a story too long to tell now. Some of you know it, but really the pivotal moments when Andy and I made the decision to answer the call of God, we'd long since believed we were called to plant a church in New York City and he'd given us the name separately, all these other confirmations, but we'd never been to New York. And the first time we came, he spoke to Andy just blocks from where I stand right now in the 9-11 Memorial in St. Paul's Chapel right up the street here on Broadway. And the next day, I'd long believed that God was gonna speak to me on the Statue of Liberty. It was quite a lot of pressure on that day. And uh, it was all connected to the name of our church. And I just really believed God had spoken to me about it. And so the day I stood up there, unlike all the tourists around me, just kind of taking in the sights and 
you know, taking selfies. Uh, I was overcome with emotion because we were on the brink of saying yes to planting a church in a city where we only knew two people. And we never planted a church before. And we were part of a great church. We didn't know really anything about church planting and sort of overwhelmed with it. I was really hoping God would give me some great promise, some guarantee that this was gonna work. And instead, he just asked me a question that rocked my world. And I've shared it many times since. He asked me when I, when I was like wrestling with God, what do we do? Because this is not like one of those things where you just sort of test it out. I mean, moving right across the planet with your kids and planting a church in Manhattan is like either A, God, or B, the single stupidest thing you've ever done. So like not really like a lot of room for gray in that. And so as I was up there wrestling and praying, God just asked me, what would you give for a city? What would you give for a city? And of course, part of that was about sacrifice. And my instinctive, overwhelming response was, you know what? We'll give everything. We'll lay everything down. We'll sacrifice the the known for the unknown. God will pour in our finance. We're going to give our very best and we'll trust you with the rest. So it was partly about sacrifice, but it was partly about the very DNA of our church. What would you give was the first thing that I was thinking about. But you know, the second half of that phrase doesn't get nearly as much attention. Second half of the question frames that I want to preach about today was what would you give for a city? For a city. We didn't just move to a city, we moved for a city. And there's actually a really big difference. We don't just exist as a church in a city, we exist as a church for a city. And there's all the world of difference. So each time, by the grace of God, as we've planted eight Liberty communities and out from us, you may not know, you know, over those years as well, we've sent pastors to start new churches who in turn have started other churches. So there's also nine new churches that came out of this last eight-year journey as well as eight Liberty communities. But each time we've planted a Liberty community, we've been prayerful, you know, not only about a city or a venue, but God call us to a neighborhood, call us to a people, call us to a place. It's not just a place to gather. If all it was was a venue, then I guess, um, like some of my friends in ministry, oh, we could make a choice as a family just to live somewhere else, somewhere, you know, green and spacious with a white picket fence and all of that stuff, and then drive in on Sunday to do church, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's neither good nor bad. But we knew that wasn't what he'd called us to. He'd called us to the city. He'd called us for the city. He called us here, not somewhere else. And so we believe there was something more to that than just a place to gather on Sunday. Where we live, where we love, where we build our family, it, it matters. What does it look like? The, que- the essence of this message today, what does it look like for you and I to live, not just in our city, but to live for our city? Not just the pastors, not just the church collectively. You and I as individuals living for our neighborhood. I wanna offer you five thoughts on this today if you're taking notes. And the first thing I'd like you to write down is one of the the keys to understanding what it is to live for a city is to understand the power of presence. The power of presence. You know, over the Christmas season, you know, which we just celebrated, we oftentimes sing carols or preach messages about Emmanuel. You know, the angels announced, you know, that you shall call him, told uh, Joseph, Mary's, Mary's, you know, sort of soon-to-be husband. You ought to call, you're gonna call the baby Jesus, which means God saves, but they will call him. He, he's, he foretold that they will call him what? Emmanuel, which means, the Bible makes sure we know what it means, means God with us. 
God with us. So yes, Jesus saves, but how did Jesus save? By being with us, Emmanuel. So God didn't just care. I'm glad he did. And he didn't just love us in our fallen condition. I'm glad he did, but he, he took it further than that. God became present in our pain, in our need, and in our lost condition. His solution was his very presence. He became present in the most tangible way. John 1:14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The message version says, and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's from this concept, the Word becoming flesh, that we get that beautiful word incarnation. Incarnate, in flesh. You know, but the incarnation is not just a beautiful, ancient, theological principle. Don't just leave it in your theology category. Think about it as a life calling for you and I. I believe you and I are called to live out an incarnational ministry and follow in the footsteps of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You know, a lot of us live like we believe this sort of ends there somewhere in the middle of verse 18 about you know, we're a new creation, that's awesome, the old is gone and the new has come, that's great news. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Full stop. No. No, the Bible adds a really important and right in the middle. of It doesn't end with our reconciliation. He reconciled us to us. He, he reconciled us to himself in Christ. It says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Gave us that ministry. And then it says a few sentences later, it says, and committed to us. The message of reconciliation. So yeah, we're saved and redeemed and restored and brought back from darkness into light. What a glorious thing that is. But let's never forget, we are to live on that incarnational ministry. We are to carry on the ministry and the message of reconciliation. It doesn't end with our salvation. He gave it to us. So no wonder when Jesus called his disciples, he made sure they remembered there was an end game. The Bible's very specific in Mark 3, 13 to 14. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to, them, to him those he wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12, listen, that they might be with him and, keyword, <laughs> that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. There was something there was a purpose. They, they had nothing to preach if they hadn't first been with Jesus. No argument there. But there was something beyond just reconciliation. He's giving to them a ministry. There's something beyond just what it is to be with Jesus because, you know, we need to join with Jesus on His mission. Jesus is the good shepherd that leads the 99 safe to go after what? The one. And He calls us to join Him in that ministry for the lost and the hurting and the blind. See, maybe you and I could tell ourselves, well, I'm here. So I'm, I'm present. What are you talking about? Like, check, done. I'm here, I'm present. But is that true? Is that true? 
Are we always present where we are? I mean, honestly, really present. I mean, I'm not just talking about your physical presence. If, I mean, maybe this is just gonna be cathartic for me, but honestly, learning to be present has been a journey for me. It did not come naturally for me. As a younger leader, especially, I was, I was mostly somewhere other than where I was, at least in my head. So it was always, particularly in the future, it was somewhere between daydreaming and strategy. I don't know, I'd like, I called it vision, but it was mostly just being quite, quite absent. And then learning to be present as a husband, there's a thought, present as a dad, present in a conversation, how novel would that be? Present in a moment, present with people in their pain, present, even in my rest, am I present or is my mind always running, always somewhere else? Have I learned what it is to be present? Because real intentional presence is actually powerful. You know, if you've been with our community a couple of years, you'd know that year before last, my family walked through a painful journey losing my mom. Over, over a year journey with a, with a brain tumor and we prayed and believed God. And you know, it was a, in many ways, God did incredible and beautiful things out of it. And I'm gonna treasure a lot of memories from that time. One of the things that I will treasure the most is people who were present. What I noticed um, was that People felt the need, and I understand it because I have the same instinct when others are hurting. People felt the need to say something, which is not actually wrong necessarily. Sometimes words can be comforting, but I think we tend to place a lot of value on saying the right thing. And actually, sometimes words just landed all wrong, even if they came with the right intentions. You know what I mean? But just beautiful, loving unconditional presence was the most powerful, life-giving. It spoke more than any words could ever speak. That's what presence does. So take it out of my grief for a moment and just talk about our hurting world because our world is grieving. What do you think our world needs in pain and division and times like these? Do they need more words from the church? I mean, it's not wrong to say something. And sometimes when there's an elephant in the room, we ought to say something. But even more powerful than that, oftentimes that loving, unconditional presence speaks volumes more even than our words do, especially if there's no correlation between our words and our presence. Forget the words, amen? There's some impact you can only have through proximity. And there's something unique about living in cities. God has called us as a church so far to cities, very different kinds of cities. New York and even the neighborhoods of New York have all kinds of diversity. One neighborhood is different to another, different in North Beach, San Francisco, different to where he placed us in St. Pete, right between the North and South communities of St. Pete, different than Manzini or what's starting to brew now in London. But there's something about cities that causes proximity, that sort of forces a connection that offers an opportunity for a gospel witness that I think is different. A lot of times when you live in other places, people have the luxury that we don't have, at least in New York, I can speak from our experience, we don't spend a lot of time in our car with the AC on, you know, just thinking or listening to the radio. No, mostly I spend time pressed up against some stranger's armpit on the subway. You know what I mean? Mostly I'm just wishing that I didn't have an elbow in my food from the person at the table next to me in the cafe. Like proximity is a thing, right? If I came here for personal space, I picked badly, right? But there's a power in that. There's a power in that presence. Do we embrace that or do we try and insulate ourselves from that world? Because the second thing that it offers us, and the second thing that I think is so important, if we're gonna live for a city and not just in it, is to embrace the power of planting. It's not only the, the power of our presence, but it's also the power of planting that changes the city. Psalm 92 Verse 12 says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. How and where? Let's look at this. Planted 
in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. Planted, they will flourish. We talk a lot about follow Jesus, thrive in community. Thrive to me is about every area of your life. It's not just growing in spiritual knowledge, information about the Bible. Thriving means your whole life being shaped into the likeness of Christ and his promises for you. But how does that happen? Planted. Planted, it says, in the house of the Lord, they will flourish. See, it's not just about presence. It's also about planting. You can be present somewhere, but have you crossed that line of planting yourself? You know, many of us live really more like potted plants than actually planting ourselves in the place where God has us. There's a way in which we don't quite really put our roots down. There's a way in which we keep ourselves insulated. We create a little artificial bubble around ourselves. And we keep our options open by being a potted plant. I could be on that side of the garden tomorrow, but we also rob ourselves of the opportunity sometimes to receive what the garden really is offering and oftentimes to give back. (laughs) It's supposed to be about something more. And we run a risk. My experience when we live a potted plant kind of life, a potted plant Christianity is we never reach our potential. Have you ever seen a a potted plant that's root bound? I think we've got a picture of one we could put up on the screen. Look at that thing. I mean, there is more root than dirt in there now. Do you think that plant can reach its potential when it's basically running out of soil? No, it can't. That's what we do when when we don't embrace the larger environment in which God has planted us. Then oftentimes we don't experience our true potential. That's why, you know, you hear the phrase, it's a funny phrase, but, you know, we often talk about getting planted in a church. What do we mean? Let's get out of our little bubble. Let's get out of our little pot. Let's get out of the little environment that we've created for ourselves. Put our roots down and decide, God, I'm here to stay. In the city where God has called us, in the faith community where you've planted us. And now I realize, big caveat, God's sovereign and things can change. And I get that. But many of us, because we know that to be true and we hold that to be true, live forever and a day temporary. Like you moved into an apartment and never unpacked the boxes. Never put the pictures on the wall and then also wondered, why doesn't it feel like home? Many of us live in a way where we don't embrace the place where God has us. Home is a really important concept. Home is, the idea of home makes a place more than just an apartment, right? You know, Andy and I and the kids last summer, it's important that the kids moved with us as well to our new house. We moved to a new house with with the kids. It's important. Felt I needed to add that. Uh, But the new place was great. It was bigger. It was better in every way. But you know, there were still tears when we left the old place. Even though the new place was better, why were there tears? Because that was home. It wasn't just an apartment. It was home. Five years, memories of life. There was tears because it meant something. Now, I think... Home is what makes church a family. More than just a congregation, more than just an option for my Sunday morning, you know, more than just a place that I attend. I I really feel like there's something so much more that God's calling us to than just an affinity, but to plant ourselves. Not this, you know, so New York, so 21st century kind of thing. Oh, you know, I think I like the worship over there and they've got a guest speaker over here. And I get that for a time. I get that for a time where you're working out, God, where would you have me? But I think there's great power in us saying, God, this is my place. In fact, I think after the service today, we'll even have next steps. And we'll be talking about what does it mean to make liberty home? The city, the people that God has you running with, are we making it home? You know, over the holidays, oftentimes 
you know, we, we hear it in our language and people will say things, especially if you weren't born and raised here or wherever it is that you live right now, it's easy to say, oh, I'm, I, you know, ask the question, are you going home for the holidays? I understand that for a time, but wouldn't that be a pity if, you know, you've lived in a place 20 years and home is forever and a day still somewhere else, home? What does home mean? I get it if what we mean is that's the house where I grew up, that's where my family is, but sometimes, maybe it's just me, but sometimes inside that language, what it's really telling me is I haven't made a home where God has called me. I remember a few years into planting the church, maybe 18 months in, we went back to Australia where the three oldest kids were all born and we, we were, um, you know, we went back and we, and we visited the church that we'd been part of for many years and somebody says to me, welcome home. And uh, what was interesting, now this is not true for everybody. For us, New York was home fast. And I get that that's not everybody's journey, but it was for us. And so I had a funny moment. I was like, I could have just let it slide, but it was helpful for me to say out loud. I was like, you know what? It's great to visit, but New York's home. I was like, I crossed a little line in myself. I know you can't necessarily orchestrate that and I'm not trying to force that on anyone. But for me, it was liberating to be able to say, I love this place. I love the memories. God did great things here. And yet it's, it's not home anymore. Great to visit, but I found home. I think it matters where home is in my heart. In fact, Proverbs 14.1 says, the wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. The message adds brick by brick. Don't we do that? Brick by brick. If we're not wise, if we're not attuned to the, the choices that we make or the words that we speak, we can unintentionally be pulling down the very house that God is trying to help us build. And I understand, look, in an eternal sense, the earth is not our home. Amen to that. We're never completely at home in this life. But what would it look like to really plant ourselves? You know, God spoke to the, the children of Israel in exile. You know, they'd abandoned God. And he'd allowed the Babylonian Empire to overrun them. And so they carried off from their promised land, from Jerusalem, lies in ruins, the temple broken down. And then they carried off into exile. And what's the advice that God gives them? They go into a godless land. It's like literally like called the city of the gods. I mean, it was like anything but their God was gonna be worshiped. It was not gonna be a good place for a good Jewish boy or girl to, to, to grow up. And what's the advice that God gives them? What's he say? Stay in the little pot. Don't touch anything. <laughs> this is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says to those I carried from, ex from Jerusalem to Babylon, I carried. <laughs> Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also seek the, the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's a good word, isn't it? Isn't that a good word? What does God say? Hey, build houses, plant crops, raise your families and seek the good of the city. Man, it's so easy to imagine we're supposed to live in our cities, you know, you know, cursing the darkness and, oh, what a wicked, no. God's saying, pray, <laughs> pray. Pray for the peace and prosperity of your city. And he says, and by the way, just in case you need a little self-interest, your prosperity's tied to theirs, FYI, <laughs> amen. That's who we're supposed to be in the city. Not just present, planted with a vision for something bigger than ourselves. But here's another important thing, the power of difference. We need to be present, we need to be planted, but we need to be different, See, from a kingdom perspective, we only make a difference to the extent to which we are, in fact, different. 
If we are not different to the environment around us and to the culture around us, then all of our presence and planting doesn't have a very big impact. It is about following Jesus. It is about thriving in community. And out of the change that that engenders in us, it causes us to make a difference. See, John 17, this was Jesus' prayer for the disciples and you and I in turn. He said in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. What's Jesus' prayer for you and I? Is that all at once, we would not be of the world, but that we would be in the world. So we would be present and we would be planted, but we would be different, not of the world. He says it twice, not of this world, don't take them out of the world, but they are not of this world. We gotta live different. See, if the followers of Jesus are indistinguishable from anybody else, ask yourself the question, why would anybody join us? <laughs> they already got that. <laughs> Amen? We gotta be different. Matthew 5 says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's called, that's, that's again potted plant living right there. Lighting it and then putting it under a bowl. No, it says they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the question is, are we? Are we different? Are we salt? Are we being light? in dark places, because congratulations, I don't know if you know this, but you are in fact in the ministry. I don't know if you realize this, you have a ministry, because minister, having a ministry is simply to meet a need. You and I are called in our sphere of influence to meet needs and a minister. You know, my first full-time job was a government-funded youth worker at a community center in Australia, and what came with being a government-funded youth worker was that I was not allowed to proselytize. What a beautiful word that is. Preach, I wasn't allowed to talk about Jesus, I wasn't allowed to evangelize. But that didn't stop us impacting a lot of lives and finding people, you know, find their way to Jesus because what that forced us to do was to rely on our lives speaking Jesus. I had to just be different because there was one really beautiful thing, the government did not require me to lie. So if a person noticing that I didn't speak like other people, act like other people, I didn't respond to heartache or hardship or setback like other people, if somebody was to notice that, just me living my life, trying to be more like Jesus, if they were to say to me, what is it about you that's so different? The government did not require me to lie in my answer. I just couldn't initiate, but my life could initiate. I think that's powerful. There was a beautiful gift inside of that, which caused me to ask the question, am I living differently? We're supposed to. Jesus was different. In Matthew 7, 28, it says when he finished teaching these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They saw a difference in Jesus. But listen, they saw a difference in the disciples too. On one occasion, the disciples pray for a man and he's healed, but heaven forbid, it was on the Sabbath. So the religious people get all bent out of shape because it's breaking the rules. And this is what the response is. They call these guys in to account for their healing. <laughs> Acts chapter four, verse 13, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man, 
who'd been healed, standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Fruit, evidence, miracles, difference, power. And what did it cause the world to do? Be confounded. That's the way we called to live. They saw a difference in Jesus. They saw a difference in the disciples. The question it begs for you and I is, is our world here today, in the here and now, experiencing that same wonder or mystery or kind of being confounded by what God is doing in my life and in yours? Got to be different. Number four is the power of sacrifice. The power of sacrifice. There's no two ways about it. That question that I led with, what would you give for a city, was in no small part about sacrifice too. What would you, what would you give? But you know, as I cast my mind back, you know, many, if not most of us in this room, at one point or another, along the way, we, we gave our lives to Jesus. We became a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, the prayer I prayed, I don't know about you and what you said and what you prayed out loud or in your heart, but I made him Lord of all. Lord of all. Not just like my life in little compartments. He's not just Lord of a couple of hours on a Sunday. Or, you know, he, you, Jesus, you take the spiritual stuff. You be Lord of that. I've got everything else. That's not how it works, right? He's Lord of all. So then I wonder, by extension, when it comes to, God, where have you called me to be? What have you called me to do? How am I called to impact the environment around me? I wonder if I see even simple things like the jobs that I choose and the neighborhood that I live in, the faith community that I put my roots down, if I see even those things as a matter, not just of preference or convenience or comfort, but a matter of obedience in my walk with Him as well. I actually believe Jesus is raising up a new generation. And I don't just mean in age, I mean a new wave where the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a radically deeply rooted concept. We talk about Jesus Lord, Lord of all, but but do we understand what that means? I mean, does that apply? I mean, yeah, we sing it. We kind of on some level believe it. But when the rubber hits the road, does it affect our choices? Or are we just kind of doing our thing? And since Jesus is Lord of all, we think that means He's like our genie in a bottle. So I'm like, He's powerful. So here's what I'm doing, Jesus. Would you bless it? Hey, this is what I'm doing today. Jesus, would you bless this? And Jesus is like, you didn't talk to me about any of this stuff, right? I didn't ask you to do any of that. And you know, sometimes in His grace, He'll pour out. But you know what we really want? So I wanna be the one who's like, your Lord, I serve at the pleasure of the King. What would you have me do? That's the place of favor. That's the place of peace. That's the place of, place, place of blessing, amen? When I'm serving at His pleasure, when I live my life as seed sown, and He would be Lord of the harvest. When I see myself as an instrument in His hand. What would it look like if you and I lived our lives as a gift to our community? That's a big thought. Romans 12 verse 1 says, uh, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What does he say? Offer your bodies as what a living sacrifice sacrifice. This was a new idea. At the time that he's writing this, all of the history, the Hebrew Jewish history has been about bringing, you know, they bring a sacrifice was generally either it was grain or it was an animal and the end of it was death. It was burned, it was offered up, but then Jesus comes, he dies and he's resurrected and now there's something new we call a living sacrifice. You and I are called, yeah, we, of course, the living sacrifice begins with dying. That's the, we got to get past that, Right? We die to our own way of living. We die to our past and our sin and to darkness. But then we are resurrected. 
Amen? With him as a living sacrifice. Now I'm a I'm a lamppost. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a signpost. Now I'm a sign and a wonder in the earth. I'm living to point people to a new and better way, a living epistle, a witness. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you are living stones, like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. There's always a cost. Listen, there is always a cost to the calling. There's always a cost. Now, no mistaking, the prize is greater than the price. But let's talk about the price for a minute. You know, I've noticed one thing when people are answering the call to full-time vocational ministry, almost without fail, in more than 20 years of watching people answer that call, right as they're about to, something comes up. Some promotion, some bonus, some kind of handcuff to keep them where they are. And it's not even right, I just find it interesting. It's an observation that I have that some temptation, some opportunity, some final test would need to be crossed in order to say, no turning back. I think if you're gonna answer the call of God, if God maybe even through this message is speaking to you and you've kind of been on the fence about where you are and who you're doing life with and you sense in you a calling from God, then I encourage you, count the cost. You know, part of living in a city, doesn't matter what city is, there's a, there's a cost, right? Cities, by definition, are always more expensive than the places around them. So we're to count the cost. I, I see people oftentimes wrestling with that cost forever. And they're on the app and looking at, you know, how, how many neighborhoods they could rent for their tiny, you know, closet that they have in Manhattan. And you know what I mean? It's like, I could buy, I could buy a city for what I'm gonna pay for. You know what I mean? And then they, and I get the wrestle, but count the cost. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not too, right? At a certain point, we can uproot ourselves from the places where we are. I mean, you know, Andy and I had a house so big in suburban Sydney that we had, we were on really terrible ministry salaries, but we didn't even have enough money to buy furniture for some of the rooms. Like in fact, we bought an Ikea beanbag and just put it in one room just so there was something in there because it was embarrassing. that there were, And then we moved to Brooklyn. The place is more expensive. I could fit like five of them in our old, but I, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, I'm focusing on the cost for a minute, but I love where God has called me, but we got to cross that line. Luke 14 says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone will ridicule you saying, this person began to build, wasn't able to finish it. I want to count the cost. When it counts, and forget not all his benefits, amen to that. I, would, I wouldn't live anywhere else. I love where God has called. In fact, I'm embarrassing. On planes, often when I'm traveling and when I'm returning to New York, I take photos of the city out the window and more than once, actually many times. The person next to me has been like, oh, is this your first time in New York? Like sometimes I'm, literally, this is embarrassing. Sometimes I'm crying. Um, and I have to say to them, actually, Actually, I live here, but I've lived here for years, but I just love it. Like, that's a good, that's a good thing, amen? That's a good thing. Let's surrender to His will, count the cost, so that number five, I've got to finish with this, we can embrace the power of longevity. There's presence and there's planting. There's difference and there's sacrifice. And if we will count the cost, we can reap this beautiful thing called the power of longevity. Longevity is a promise. It's a promise, and, uh, you know, I'll give you rapid fire some scriptures. You know, Deuteronomy 5.33, you shall walk in the, the, all the way of the Lord that He's commanded you, that you may live and it may go well with you and you may live long in the land you shall possess. Proverbs 9.11, 
Through wisdom, your days will be many and years will be added to your life. Isaiah 40, 31. They wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So longevity, it's a promise from God. But listen, good things take time. They do, right? On the whole, by and large, good things just take a little time. Impacting cities that impact the world, which is part of our vision, our calling in Christ, not only to know Christ, but to make Him known. Impacting cities that impact the world, it, just ta- it takes time. In fact, my experience of living in New York was it took a little time for people to trust me. It's like, are you gonna stay? Are you gonna lie? I mean, you got you know, everybody, we all arrive here with like big talk and big ideas and big dreams, but people are taking just a hot second to work out if I'm still gonna be here a year from now. And that's okay. A little time to build trust and rapport and respect. Because the kingdom vision, it's a marathon. It's not just a sprint, right? So am I pacing myself in my heart? Am I running in such a way as to finish? The Chinese proverb, you ever heard the Chinese proverb about when's the best time to plant a tree? You heard this? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. So maybe you're thinking, I wish I did this years ago. Okay, but the second best time is right now. <laughs> it's right in front of you right now. We can make a choice in our hearts because there's something just beautiful about dwelling, something beautiful about making home. You know, I found out last year that one of our neighborhood haunts, actually, truth be told, basically our second kitchen, uh, in our neighborhood, one of the restaurants that we eat at a lot, we never told them, really just until the last couple of months, like what we do and, you know, being pastors of a church, we just done life with them and been involved in the, the community that is that little cafe. Anyway, one time JR, who's the, one of the pastors of our downtown Brooklyn community came in, one of the staff knew him and what he did and, they, and, and the, the restaurant has two halves and they said to him, oh, big pastors in the back. <laughs> so JR come and talk. If you know me, I couldn't care less about titles. So it wasn't about, but I was like, big pastor? Is that what, okay, is that what people, I, mean, I didn't even know that they knew what I did, but I was like, you know what? I kind of love that. I kind of love that I didn't have to announce with trumpets, like I'm a pastor. I didn't have to come out all guns blazing, but I could just do life and have an impact, become part of that community. And in time, God is opening incredible conversations in that place. Presence. You know, we lived five years in our last apartment, but upstairs from us, Joey, he lived in that building 50 years. He's about to turn 80. He's lived in our neighborhood the whole time. Joey lived in that apartment 50 years. But you know, he's, over those five years, he became part of the family. I mean, I'm not joking. He came to Thanksgiving. He came to Christmas. I mean, part of the family. Yes, Joey was playing a board game with Sam as he does. But listen, next time you need entertainment, save your money. Don't go to the movies. Don't go to a concert. Don't go to a sports game. Grab an hour with Joey and just tell him, tell me about Brooklyn when you were growing up. You'll be amazed at the stories, but it takes time, longevity, right? A little bit of time. Last year, I got the opportunity to visit downtown LA and I got to very briefly meet an incredible man that they call Father G, Father Greg Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest who in the late 80s, as a white man, moved right into the middle of a neighborhood that badly needed the love of Jesus. And he started a thing that today is called Homeboy Industries and uh, started to minister to gang addicts, uh, sorry, uh, gang members and drug addicts and returning citizens from the prison system and just love on them. Do you know today, this is, we look at, we jump into moments, right? Now you go in, I mean, they got bakery, they got food trucks, they got medical, they got ministry and all kinds of, in the prison system, incredible impact. 15,000 people a year walk through those doors for help. But it took 30 years. It took 30 years. Are we willing to count the cost? 
Are we willing to be present, to be planted in order that God could do in us miracles like that? I wanna pray for us today. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come join me. I wanna pray over us those simple things. I believe God has called you and I to be mindful of the power of presence, truly present. Mindful of the power of planting ourselves. Mindful of our difference. Ready for the sacrifice. And believing that through longevity, we can have an impact that's generational. Frankly, that's eternal. In Jesus' name, I'm gonna pray for you, Father. I believe when you called Andy and I to New York City and you called us here, not just to be in a city, but to be for a city. I believe that was not just a question and a calling on us or even for a time and for a place, but I believe it was a sign, it was a foretelling of a calling that would rest on everyone that called this place home. Lord, I believe it's one of the most important things that we ought to wrestle with, that amongst the chaos and the busyness and career and choices and to-do lists and the day in and the day out, we would never neglect with You as Lord and Saviour to say, Lord, help me live for a city and let the power and the fruit and the impact of our lives be greater than we could ever possibly imagine because we laid it down and we gave it to You. Even if today it seems like such a little thing, even if today it seemed like that lunch must have been in the hand of a little boy in the face of thousands that needed food, these little loaves and these little fishes don't seem like much until we're willing to give what it is that we have and we call our own in this moment and put it in the Master's hands, that we could be part of a miracle. Feed thousands, stories told for generations, God. Let us live for our city. In Jesus' Name, Amen.